Good morning, everybody. Oh, that was terrible. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, there you go. That was a little bit better. Man, we should be excited. We're in the house of the Lord. We're together. We're able to gather. Just think back to when you were stuck in your house and you couldn't come outside and hopefully you can be a little bit more encouraged to uh, to be in the house of God, to be able to worship freely and to uh, to serve the Lord who has uh, blessed us and loved us so well. Amen. 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 I want to uh, start off by telling you guys that I missed you. We uh, we had a weekend away. My family did this last uh, this last weekend where we got to go and just spend some time together, uh, enjoy each other, went down to the beach. Even at the end of October, the, the beach was still warm enough for us to go in and just enjoy our kids and enjoy each other. And uh, I had a chance to talk to, to the kids about it and to Mary that, that uh, this last weekend, October 24th, I, uh, I had the opportunity or the blessing, I should say, to, to celebrate 16 years saved, 16 years in the kingdom. It's my, my born again birthday and uh, it's, just, it's just interesting. I was, I was thinking to myself that I'm in danger of becoming faithful. You know, it's, it's, been, it's been 16 years and there's still always that feeling of like, man, there's so much more you need to do, Lord, and there's so much more that I can be doing in order to show my gratitude and, and love for the way that you've loved me. But, uh, <clears throat> but still, I think, uh, I don't think I'm going back the other direction. I think this is it for me. So it was a wonderful weekend, a uh, wonderful time to celebrate and the way that the Lord worked that out for us. We did hear, however, about service last weekend and uh, how Gary ministered so well and the folks that were here and all the things that God was doing. Uh, a great message that I was able to actually go back through and, and read through some of the things that Gary shared with us. And uh, I just can't wait for uh, the opportunity this morning to get back into it, to focus on what God's been doing in our series here. Uh, so quickly, I'll, I'll recap a little bit of what we're, where we're at in this fall in our church. We've been focusing on community. We've been focusing on unity. And we've gone through uh, this series we started a few weeks back. I guess we're, we're five weeks into it now um, in the book of Philippians. And seeing how this church was planted, seeing how uh, God moved upon these people's lives, uh, built up a church from just a few people that were at a prayer meeting. So we had a prayer meeting here just this last Friday night. That was amazing. God was here. People were here. And we know that God moves through the gathering. God moves through people who are seeking him. So we've seen this with this, this uh, book of Philippians so far, how uh, Paul comes in, basically plants the church. People are getting saved from all different walks of life and all different backgrounds. And uh, he's now gone and he finds himself in prison again. And he's writing this letter to them, this, this group of believers in Philippi that have been uh, a church for about 10 years now. Right? It's about 30 years after Christ's death and resurrection. They've been planted for 10 years. Paul's made multiple trips, it seems like, back and forth. And now he's in prison and he's writing this letter to them. And I was just going through some of the some of the highlights and I won't go through all the points that we've, we've already covered, but some of the good things that we saw Philippians uh, 1 6 says he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ, that this is an ongoing work that he's doing in our lives. We saw that uh, Paul said that my chains are in Christ, even though he's in prison. We, ha we hear him writing to the Philippians saying that I'm not bound by Caesar. I'm not bound by the Romans. My chains are in Christ. I belong to him right? I may be uh, a prisoner in the world's eyes, but I'm free in Christ. I'm bound to Christ. He's the only one that has rule and reign over me. And then uh, one from, from last week, it says, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, right? That, that idea of being bound to Christ is his life is alive in us. We are alive in Christ. Right? And the same way that he suffered, we have actually a blessing to be able to suffer on his behalf. It's just this idea. It said that in the book of Acts about those who were following Jesus. When they talked about them, they, they first started being called Christians. It said that those who have turned the world upside down have come here. Some of these concepts about suffering with Christ, being, being a slave to Christ, a slave to righteousness, it's just upside down thinking. It's, it's a new life and a new world and a new way of living. And uh, it's so good. So we're going to see what God has for us as we move forward. We've gone through chapter 1 and the first four verses of chapter 2. So I'm going to pray, and then if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be at verse 5 this morning. 
So Lord, we thank you for another opportunity to be in your house. We thank you that we get a chance to gather. We thank you that we can be excited and joyful for what you've done in our lives, Lord, what you're doing right now, what we expect you to do in the future, Lord God. We've come because we know that you're alive. You said that you are not the God of the dead. You are the God of the living, Lord. Breathe life into us this morning. Give us anticipation and excitement and joy for the things that are ahead of us, Lord. Our country, our nation is on edge and so uncertain about what's going to happen in the next week. But what I do know is that you are going to be on the throne next week, Lord God, that we can call upon you, that you will meet us in our homes, you will meet us in our Bible studies, you will meet us with our children, you will meet our children at their schools, Lord God. Nothing has changed from you, for you, and from you, Lord God. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're the Alpha and the Omega, Lord God. You declare the end from the beginning, Lord, and all we want to do is get on your page, Lord. All we want to do is have the same heartbeat that you have, Lord God, that we cannot be easily swayed, Lord. That we will not be terrified, Lord, with the storms of this life, Lord. We know that you're the God that calms the seas, Lord Jesus. All you have to do is speak a word into our situation this morning. All you have to do is speak a word into our circumstances this morning, Lord God. And we can have a peace that surpasses understanding. We ask that your word would be exactly what you say it is. You say that it's alive and it's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord. It's able to cut right down to our heart and to our soul, Lord. Let your word be alive in this place this morning, Lord God. Not dead words on a page, Lord God, but life breathed into us, Lord. Reveal yourself to us. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. amen. All right. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. This morning we are going to read down through verse 18. So Paul says to the church in Philippi, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. And coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And being found in appearance as a man, he... All right, I read that one, right? Let's go on to verse 9. No, I think we need to read it again. That's the Lord. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. So good. So good. So again, remember, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi. It's grown into multiple churches. Right. When we, when we first read in, uh, in chapter one, it says to the elders and to the deacons and to the ministers and to the leaders that they're meeting in multiple places, multiple houses. People are growing and maturing. And he has a lot to say this morning, I think, about uh, the church, about what we believe, about the community, so on and so forth. So number one this morning, if you're taking notes, is going to be the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ. Verse 5 starts off with this idea of you and I needing to have the mind of Christ alive within us. But I want to go back just the first four verses of, of chapter 2, and then we'll, we'll see if that helps us make sense of what it means to have the mind of Christ so that we can pursue that. So I'm going to read verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. And let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And then the mind of Christ of verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus 
who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So what is this mind of Christ about? Consideration and favoring others, looking at life as a community thing, not an individual thing. That whole first four verses of, of chapter two is about this humility and thinking about others and having love and being of one accord and don't consider just what's best for you, but consider others before yourself. And he says, let that mind, that way of thinking, that way of living, which is the way that Christ thinks and lives, be alive inside of you. This idea can be summed up as humility. Jesus is not pretending as if he's not God, but he's also not requiring himself to be treated as God. You see that? A lot of times people will, people will say that, yeah, God came and, and Jesus came, but he was pretending that he's not God and he's hiding around. He's not pretending. He knows who he is. He is not having an identity crisis. He knows exactly who he is. He's just not making people treat him that way. Think about it when you, when you see like TV shows like Undercover Boss or you see these things where people don't know who they're talking to and they treat him like a normal person. We're shocked. Oh, you don't know that that's the boss. Oh, you don't know that he's famous and you asked him to hold the door for you or to give you a cup of coffee or go grab you a napkin? What are you doing? Because we think that famous people, special people, exalted people deserve to be treated a certain way. But what Jesus says is, no, I know exactly who I am. I'm the king of kings, lord of lords, but I will humble myself. I don't need to be treated by everybody as if I am the almighty. That mind is what he's telling us we need to operate with. God is not telling you to act or think that you are not incredibly valuable or incredibly important because you are. I think we make the, the same mistake when we start talking about humility, we say, let's act like we don't matter. Let's act like we're not valuable. Let's act like we're not important. We're just lowly peons in this world. No, God's saying is you are of the utmost importance. You're so important that I'll come down out of heaven to come and love you. There's nothing more important than you. However, you don't need to act like it. Just be humble. Know who you are. Understand your identity. We've talked about it with our youth. We talked about it in our church. And I'm just reminded in my own life. I, I just mentioned 16 years saved. I would probably say half of that. Maybe four years into pastoring, eight years into my salvation, I finally felt comfortable in my identity in Christ. It's not something that happens quickly, in my opinion. To really know who you are and not be shaken by what people have to say, not be shaken by your past, not be shaken by how you feel on any particular day, month, season, year, but to know this is my identity and I'm secure in it. Then you can be humble because you don't have to prove anything to anybody. You don't have to get your, your recognition or your, um, your affirmation and confirmation from people or from life. You already have it in Christ. Amen. And then you can be humble. Yeah. And Jesus is saying, this is the mind that you need to have. Paul is telling the Philippians, that mind that's in Christ, where he could be God but make himself humble as a man, that's how we have to behave. He made himself of no reputation, it says, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So Jesus is equal with God, right? But even though he's God, he comes and he washes feet. Even though he's God, he comes and he serves tables. He serves people food. Even though he's God, he hangs out with lepers and touches them. Even though he's God, he, he meets a promiscuous woman at a well who's isolated and is not allowed to be around other people, another man of another culture, and yet there he is. Because the mind of Christ, the way that he lives, the way that he thinks is so contrary and different than everyone else. And even with all that, he continues to love people. It says that he suffered the obedience even to death, the death of a cross. They're judging him as if he is um, a criminal and as if he's cursed and hang him on a cross. And yet, what does he do? What does the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ do? He loves them and he says, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. So when we say the mind of Christ, it's not just saying, hey, read your Bible, remember some scriptures and, and think like the scriptures tell us a thing. It's a being thing. And Paul is saying, this mind of Christ needs to be in you. It's a lot that we're being asked to do. How do we do it? 
Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul again says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. I hope you can picture that. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Say reasonable. reasonable. Say reasonable. reasonable. Say it's not a big deal. You see how crazy that is? God says, present your body, your whole life, everything about you as a living sacrifice, which means you are alive, but you are laid on an altar for somebody else to do with you what they please. And then he says, that's reasonable. It's a reasonable service, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Remember what I just said a minute ago, right? Like, it is, you are great, you are amazing, you are made in the image of God, but humble yourself. Don't think more highly than you ought to think, but think soberly. God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually we are members of one another. Community, unity, connected to one another. Our lives matter. I can't just do what Vaughn wants to do because I'm a living sacrifice, and my part of the body is going to affect your part of the body and your part of the body. And that's the mind of Christ. His part of the body affects every other part of the body. The mind of Christ. Romans 8, 28, or excuse me, before I go there, this idea, how do we get there? Regeneration and a brand newness. How many of you like brand new things? Yeah, don't lie. It don't matter what it is. Like, you get a new pair of shoes and you smell them. Just anything new, there's something about newness. This idea of, a, of, of the mind of Christ, just so we, we understand what we're talking about, it's not something that you take your mind and you slap a coat of paint on it. You wash it up real good. It has to be regenerated. It has to be brand new if you're going to have the mind of Christ. These things, a living sacrifice, considering others before yourself, all that kind of stuff is not something we can shift ourselves into being. It's something that we have to be regenerated and recreated to be. A mind that's not conformed or shaped or molded by this world. When we live our lives, when we turn on the TV, when we get onto Facebook, when we call one another, when we go to work, what the, what the world is doing is conforming us, shaping us into something. Every day you go into this world, something's rubbing up against you. Something's sanding you down a little bit. Something's spray painting on top of you what they want you to be. That's being conformed into the image of the world. That's what Paul's talking about here. And he says, what? Don't be conformed into the image of the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be formed into a Republican or a Democrat and fit into that mold. Don't be formed into a majority culture or a minority culture and be fit into that mold. It's saying be formed into the image of Christ. He's the mold. His mind is the mind. If our opinions and our thinking and our living and our being is not in line with him, then we're just wrong. We've got to be regenerated. Romans 8, 28 now. God says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. We love that. It's all good. It works to good for me because I love God. He loves me. He called me. Everything's going to work out even if it looks bad, right? Verse 29. However, for whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That scripture that we love so much that it doesn't matter how bad it looks and what's going on and what's happened and what situation we find ourselves in, it's going to work out for good because God loves me and he called me. That is true, but it's also connected to being conformed into the image of Jesus. You don't get the blessings of all things working out to, for your good just because. You get it because you're no longer part of the world and you're no longer being shaped by the world. You're being conformed into the image of Christ. Think about some of the things that Jesus has said and how contrary they are to human nature and how contrary they are to our lived experience. If you read your Bible, oftentimes what should be happening to you is you'll read it and you'll be like, that's not what I'm experiencing in the world. That's not what's going on in my heart. That's not what's going on in my mind. It's contrary. It's different. 
Jesus says things like, if you want to live, you got to die. Imagine going to your doctor and they're like, look, you're pretty sick. What I'm going to do is kill you. And then things will get better. That's what Jesus said. You want to live? Die. Jesus says, blessed are the poor and the meek. Imagine if the politicians came on and said, here's our plan for the next four years. We're going to make everybody super poor and everybody super meek and humble. How many votes are they going to get? That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Somebody hits you, turn the other cheek. I'm a parent and that's so hard. I catch myself in the car telling my kids like, hey, if somebody puts their hands on you, you know what you got to do. And I'm looking, I'm like, you better understand, that means fight for yourself. And then I'm like, turn the other cheek. <laughs> you know what I mean. Because <laughs> it's contrary. No, don't let somebody put their hands on you. No, don't let nobody be aggressive with you. Defend yourself. Fight for your honor. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Jesus says, if somebody takes your jacket, give them your sweater too. What are you talking about? <laughs> We act like Christians and we love it and we love the word of God, but it's almost like either we're skipping over this stuff or we don't really realize how different it actually is that he's calling us to be, what it means to have the mind of Christ. And if it's not bad enough, he says, love your enemies. I watch all of you guys all over social media just loving your enemies right now. You and me both. So the only way these things are truly possible is if we have renewed minds, if we persevere in the process of being molded into the image of the sun. It's not going to happen quickly. It's not going to happen overnight. And it is going to be painful and it is going to be filled with drama. But you can't fix what you already have. You have to start over and get something brand new. And then even once you get it, it takes a while to figure it out. You got to persevere in being shaped and formed into the image of Christ. That's why I said earlier, I feel like I'm in danger of becoming faithful after 16 years, because if I hold up my image to the image of Christ, we are still very far apart. There's a lot more shaping that needs to take place. This community and unity thing is first and foremost about being saved, being completely renewed in your spirit, in your mind, in your body. And none of that is possible without understanding how it is that God desires for this to take place in our life. This is what Paul's talking about. It might seem like something we can easily look over. Hey, that mind that's in Christ, let it be in you as well to the Philippians, but it's a big deal. If newness and regeneration is what God desires for us, then in verses 5 through 8, um, we show the Philippians, or Paul shows the Philippians, and he shows us, he shows the world, how God intends to accomplish it. Okay? Regeneration, newness, formed in the image of Christ, the mind of Christ is what he wants. What we're reading in verses 5 through 8 is how he's going to accomplish it. So remember, week one, church in Philippi, it's been 20 years um, after Paul's salvation when he first goes there. And uh, before Paul goes, he asks, he goes to Jerusalem, he sees Peter, he sees James, he sees the other apostles, and he says, listen, I want to go out to the world that's not Jewish and start telling them about Jesus. Jesus has been gone for 20 years. It's time. I'm ready. I feel like God's called me to that. God's called you to all the Jews. They say, yes, go ahead. But you have to have sound doctrine and care about the poor. Paul says, all right, I'm out. Let's do it. Acts chapter 6, excuse me, chapter 16, verse 4. We kind of covered some of this in, in, uh, in week one, but listen to what it says. Acts 16, 4. As they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep doctrine which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem, right? Paul's gone out. He's got a team. They're talking about the decrees, but it was Peter and the other apostles that confirmed these things. It's not just something Paul wants to talk about. Verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. It wasn't because of awesome preaching. It wasn't because of awesome worship. It wasn't because of the comfort of the facilities that they were in. It was because they were preaching the truth, caring for the poor, that numbers were being added. People were uh, genuinely receiving salvation. I love that Gary got up here this morning when he was receiving tithe and offering, when he was telling us about what we have coming up, and he says, all of us have been touched by God in some way. He just said it matter of fact, like he expects that to be the reality. And then it was almost like the response that he got from us was not very comforting. Because then he's like, well, 
if you haven't, ask your neighbor. <laughs> Why is that the reality of the church in 2020? Because maybe some things are different. When the church is starting and being birthed, it's about the doctrine of God and it's about the power of the Holy Spirit and people are having genuine faith and they're having to huddle in homes. They're having to get letters and read them all over the place. Like, it's serious business. And today it's not always like that. <laughs> Let me text the pastor at 9.15. Hey, I ain't gonna make it today. What are you talking about? This doctrine, probably the most important decree, the most important doctrine in all of Christianity is also found in these first few verses of Philippians chapter 2 this morning, verses 5 through 8. It's called the doctrine of the incarnation. If you're taking notes, it's a big one. Write that down. Number two this morning is also the incarnation. Tell you what that means. Verse 5 through 8 again. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Jesus or in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it to be robbery, to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The incarnation is to be carnate. Let me give you a definition for carnate. It means to be made manifest or comprehensible. Manifest, comprehensible, comprehensible. What it means is manifest. I can actually see it. It's visible and comprehensible or comprehensible. I understand what I'm looking at. So the incarnation is something amazing. It's manifesting and becoming visible and understandable. The doctrine, the decree, the understanding, the Christian understanding of the incarnation is something has become visible, something has been manifested, and it is understandable, comprehensible. We know what it is that's come into our world. Colossians 1.15 says, He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. This incarnation, something, the invisible God is now visible, the Word has become flesh, and we see it and we comprehend it. We know what is now before us. It's a big deal. This is how we come to understand that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And this is how we come to understand what that means and why it had to be that way. The incarnation. It's not just a cool story. Oh, God came to earth. God became a man. There's all kinds of questions that have to be answered here. Is he still God? Is he connected to God? Is, is he fully man or does he, is he not man? Does he get to go back and forth between the two? Does he, does he turn off his pain sensors because he's God and doesn't want to feel the nails going into his hand? It's a huge deal. And the principles or, or the understanding of it, think about this. It, it's, it can get complicated, but Paul is writing this to a small group of believers in multiple houses in the year like 60 A.D., and he's talking about this God who came from, from heaven. What did it say? He doesn't consider it robbery to be, in, to be equal with God. He is God, but he took on the form of a man. The eternal word of God, which is God, the Son, takes on flesh, dwells amongst men, and he's never separated from the Father. We serve a triune God. How is it possible that the Word, Jesus is the Word, we know that from John chapter 1, right? He's, he's always with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The three of them together do not come together to make a God. There is no God without all three of them all the time. And yet he's able to come into the world, become fully man, be birthed by a virgin, and still exist fully man and fully God. And a lot of that doctrine, a lot of that principle is established in Philippians chapter 2 right here. I want to read to you guys. This book is called The Incarnation by Athanasius, and I'm only going to read to you two little highlights. If you're looking for a book to like make you think about some more of this kind of stuff, this is a good one. Um, it says, 
as we give an account of this, it's talking about this incarnation, what we're talking about this morning. It is first necessary to speak about the creation of the universe and its maker, God, so that, we, so that one may thus worthily reflect that its recreation was accomplished by the word who created it in the beginning. For it will appear not at all contradictory if the father works its salvation in the same one by whom he created it. So that's a fancy and, and old way of saying, listen, if you understand the world, the universe, all of creation, and that God the Father used God the Son to create everything, you should not be shocked get that God the Son comes into this world to recreate it, to, to save us. Who else could do that? Only he could do that. And how else could he do it? Only through the incarnation. He can't do that the way that he originally did it in heaven before sin. He has to come in and become a man that's sinless in order to recreate life for you and I. Whew, it might be too much to think about, but good Lord, if you think about it, you ain't never going to sit in your chair again with your hands down not worshiping him. You ain't ever going to go home and say, I'm too tired to read his word. Because if it's true and he's written to us that we would be able to understand and have the same mind that's in him, what else would you be doing with your life? Let me give you one more. I'm going to put down my book. This one's a little bit more easy to understand. Same concept, though. He says, as when a great king has entered some large city and made his dwelling in one of the houses in it, such a city is certainly made worthy of high honor. And no longer does any enemy or bandit descend upon that city, but it is rather reckoned worthy of all care because of the king's having taken residence in one of its houses. So also does it happen with the king of everything coming himself into our realm and dwelling in a body like the others, every desire of the enemy against human beings has henceforth ceased, and the corruption of death, which had prevailed formerly against them, perishes, for the race of human beings would have been utterly dissolved had not the master and savior of all, the Son of God, come for the completion of death. Oh, God. It says a king comes into a city, stays in a house, that city becomes holy. All the protection surrounds that house and surrounds that city. Even the enemies know that we are not going to attack that city. And God says that Jesus coming in the incarnation into humanity, that the same thing happens. Humanity becomes holy again. The enemy has no sway and cannot attack humanity anymore. Jesus deals with our ultimate um, enemy, which is death on the cross. I used to hate books. I used to think it was cool to say I made it through high school without reading a full book. Just study what I needed to know for the test. I ain't gonna lie, I cheated every now and then. High school, college. I was only cheating myself. When I got saved, it's not like I was somebody that loved to read, but I couldn't stop reading this book. I don't care if you hate it, if you hate reading, low comprehension level, pick it up and read. And then God has actually given us other men and women. We, it's a community. God gives different gifts, it said, different parts of the body. There are men and women who God has given special revelation, special understanding to be able to process spiritual things and then lay it out for us in a way that helps us deepen and grow our relationship with God. Amen. But we want Netflix. I'm guilty too, I'm just telling you. Let's hold each other accountable, all right? I was about to binge watch all of Mandalorian yesterday and I forgot they only do one episode at a time. Good Lord. We're in it together. Somebody say amen. amen. Only the creator can recreate. What needs to be done for man cannot be done from the outside. It has to be done from the inside. This is the incarnation. He has to come in and actually do that work. So the king dwells in one of our residences. <laughs> He's so good. I want to talk about this all day, but you'll never get out. So let's keep going. Verse 8. Verse 8 says, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of, of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So verse 9 starts with therefore. Everybody say therefore. Therefore, therefore tells us that 
What is it there for? It tells us that it's there for because something happened before, right? We need to know what happened before. We need to understand it. And if we do, we can understand what's about to be said, right? So what just happened is we were told that we need to have the mind of Christ. And we were told that it's possible because of the incarnation. He's come to regenerate us, to renew us, to conform us into, him, to, into his image. And because of all that, therefore, we can understand that he is very God of very God. He is the God man and he is Lord. He's supreme. Every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. He is God. He's not just a special prophet. He's not just a powerful person. He's God himself in the flesh. When you hear his name, when you see him, you should bow before him. You should come to his altar. You should confess his, him as Lord. You should humble yourself as a servant unto the king. So number one, the mind of God. Number two, the incarnation. Number three, only God. Only God can be, only God can do the things that Jesus has done. We got to remember that Paul's writing to these churches in Philippi, and he's trying to continue to teach them and remind them of the things that he's already taught them because they're so important. This truth is not negotiable. It's not something that they can maybe understand and maybe not understand. They probably had some of the similar issues that we have in our day and age when it comes to In there as well, we want the experience of our faith, not the, really the knowledge and understanding of our faith. I want to be moved in worship. I want to be preached onto my feet. I want to be touched for prayer and feel something. And Paul, not that those things don't exist or not that they're not important, but Paul is saying like, no, let's talk about your mind and what you understand about your God. We all have mountaintop experiences, but nobody lives on the mountaintop. So here's what I think is, is happening here in this, in this portion of Scripture where Paul's talking about every knee bowing, every tongue confessing. He's trying to remind them that, that, uh, uh, that Jesus is God, but he's the same God that he's always been. In, in history, even in our history, some people think we have an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. We don't have two gods. We have one God. We have a triune God in three persons, but they are not at odds with each other. We don't have the vengeful, wrathful God of the Old Testament who's smoking everybody in fire and brimstone and this other separate God who's in the New Testament loving everybody and turning the other cheek. It's the same God. It's always love. It's expressed in different ways at different times. And Paul is trying to get them to understand that so they, they really know who their faith is in, right? Christianity is, is mono, monotheistic. We only serve one God. But it's revolutionary in the world to say that he's triune, three persons. It's not a simple thing to understand, and we need to understand it well enough to be able to express it to others. We're not polytheistic. One of the things that set the Jews apart is everybody had a pantheon, a bunch of gods, the sun god, the moon god, the water god, the alligator god. My wife's Egyptian. We went to Egypt. There's gods everywhere for every different thing. The Jews come and say, no, there's only one god. And Paul in Philippians is alluding to that. Let me read you a couple scriptures quickly. Deuteronomy 6.3 says, Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Deuteronomy, Old Testament, they've come out of Egypt reminding them, you only have one God, it's not a pantheon, there's not a bunch of gods, the Lord your God is one, you are different than everyone else, he's the only true God. Let's listen to what Jesus says, in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, one of the scribes or lawyers comes to him and says, having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that Jesus had answered them well, he asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment, and the second, like it is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Old Testament, Deuteronomy, the Lord is one. Jesus, New Testament, it's not a new God, it's the same God. The Lord your God is one. And he says, community. Love the Lord, but love the body. These two commandments hang all the prophets, hang all the law. This isn't what Isaiah says now. I told you that when Paul's writing 
to the Philippians. Hopefully you're still with me. Paul's writing to the Philippians and he's trying to get them to understand that he is God and that there's no question about that and they need to understand it. This is Isaiah chapter 45, verse 20, 700 years before Jesus, 700 and almost 50 years before Paul writes Philippians. Isaiah says, assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from the ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior? There is none beside me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out from my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath or confess. When Paul's writing Philippians and he says to Jesus, his Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue should confess, he's expecting these people to know their Old Testament, to know their word, and know that what he's saying is this God is the same God from Isaiah 700 years before. There's no Old Testament, New Testament God. There's one God, he's triune, and you've seen him. He's become flesh. He dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Philippians, in your houses, know this and be able to tell everybody else. So good. So good. When you, when you read, I'm going to move on, but when you read, that's what should be happening to you. Is like You're reading something like, man, I've heard that before. I've seen that before. That makes sense with this. That makes sense with that. With that. And it's like these dots are being connected and a full picture is beginning to take place. Verse 12 of Philippians 2. We're almost there. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Right? We get another therefore here in verse 12. So now you've got to remember everything that we've talked about so far. You've got to have the mind of Christ. You can have the mind of Christ because he's incarnate. He's come to regenerate you and to renew you. He is God of gods. He is fully God, fully man. Every knee should bow, every tongue should confess. And therefore, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is where the rubber meets the road for you and I. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Number four this morning is be saved. The whole point of everything is that you would be saved and that I would be saved. Your salvation is the most important thing in all of existence. God has gone through a relentless pursuit of you, not us, you, me, individually. It's not this collective thing where he's like, <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to go save mankind. He called you by name. He knows exactly who you are and would have done all of that just for you and just for me. And we need to accept it that way and receive it that way and understand it that way. Paul doesn't say, let's work out our salvation. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why fear and trembling? What should cause us to have fear and tremble? It should be the understanding the gravity of the decision that we're being asked to make. Your decision about salvation is, again, the gravity of that decision, it has eternal implications. Where you're going to spend eternity, heaven and hell, you're going to live forever. Where are you going to be? What is your life going to be like? How are you going to live this part of your life here on this earth before you're fully regenerated with a new body and go into heaven or go into hell? Your new body will be like Adam's and Eve's were before sin. They were indestructible, just like Jesus' life is indestructible, which is why when he's on the cross and he dies, he comes back to life because he can't be killed. He is indestructible. I'm going to have an indestructible life and body. You're going to have an indestructible life and body. And that body is either going to be indestructible and suffering eternal fire <laughs> all day, every day, for millions and billions and millions and billions of years, or it's going to be in the presence of God in peace and joy with no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more pain, and no more tears. And God is saying, because you can have my mind, and because I've come incarnate and you've been regenerated, now you have to make that decision for yourself. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Psalm 111 says, the fear of, 111 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
That's where this thing starts to shift you into making the right decision about salvation. It's not about the love of God. It's not about uh, the experience of church. It's about the fear of God as a beginning of wisdom, like, oh God, you are huge. And this isn't something new. This is something you've been doing since before creation. You've been working out this plan. I'm humbled before that. I'm actually fearful because of that. I give you honor and reverence because of that. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and they despise instruction. Last one, Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. God, Philippians is so good. We've heard it before. You've read it before. You could get on, online right now and see all kinds of, of you know, information and, and um, books about it. But imagine getting this letter for the first time, huddled in a house somewhere under candlelight, and he's telling you, the word became flesh. He's, he's equal with God. He doesn't consider it robbery to be equal with God because he's God, but he takes on a body. Healthy fear of the Lord. That's what keeps us, that's what brings us initially to salvation, and that's what keeps us growing in our salvation and transformation. If there's no fear of the Lord, we won't keep growing because it doesn't really matter to us. There's no consequence. Paul says, you've always obeyed in my presence, but even more so in my absence, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean about his presence and his absence? Paul's saying, listen, when I'm there, when the pastor's there, when he's watching you and preaching to you and he's listening and watching your lives and then he's getting, he's getting feedback from other people about how you're living and how they're living, well then, yeah, everybody has this fear and this reverence and they're living the way that they should. But what about in my absence? He's like, I'm gone. I'm in jail. I'm sending you a letter. Are you still working out your salvation as if I was there? Much more in my absence, you need to be. Paul's saying to you and I this morning, listen, it's cool when you can gather every Sunday and you can gather every Wednesday and you can have life group all the time. There's a women's meeting here and a men's meeting there and there's a life group meeting there, right? He says, but what are you going to do when the country shuts down because of, pan because of a pandemic and there's no church and there's no gathering? Are you still going to be able to work out your own salvation in my absence, he says? Man, tell me that's not fitting for 2020. You've got to work out your own salvation. Here's the good news if that's scary for any of us or those of us who at times felt like, man, I thought I was working it out better than I obviously was when the pandemic hit. Here's the good news. Paul says, it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Thank you, Jesus. Somebody say amen. amen. This is where you bring in the third person of the Trinity. He's a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says, but I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. and He's going to do all the work. <laughs> Thank you. I can't do it, Lord. You don't have to make it happen, church. Amen. You don't even have to do the actual work of working out your own salvation. All you have to do is say, Lord, work in me. All I have to do is say, Lord, I'll open it and read it, but I need your Holy Spirit to give me revelation and help and hope. He says, the, the will to do, right? The desire, the will to do, and the actual working out of it, right? Hebrews 13, 20 puts it like this. May the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, Holy Spirit raised by the Spirit, right? The great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his own sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. He says, listen, I'm going to come in you and I'm going to do the work. You just got to let me do the work. Don't fight against me. Amen. Spirit versus flesh. We've read, we read scriptures like that, right? Where we, we, we fight against God. No, you can't have my life. No, you can't have my finances. No, you can't have my time. No, you can't have my marriage. No, you can't have my kids. No, you can't have my plans. And then nothing happens because we're fighting against the spirit. If we just surrender, which is what Jesus has taught us, he'll actually do the work. He'll bless your marriage, bless your family, bless your resources, bless your time, bless your community, bless your study time. It's so hard for us to surrender though. That's why God himself has to say, I gotta, I gotta put myself on a cross. Otherwise, my people will not have my mind and my heart and my humility. Let's close 
with the last few verses here, last four verses. Number one, the mind of Christ. Number two, the incarnation. Number three, only God can do and be all these things. Number four is be saved, work out your own salvation. And let's close verse 14 through 18 says, Paul says, back to the community and back to this idea of unity, says, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Number five and our last one this morning is unity and community again. Paul says, yes, I'm going to tell you guys that this is how you have to live, but do all this without complaining and disputing. <laughs> what does it mean to do all these things without complaining and disputing? I think it goes back to the humility that we started off with this morning. Stop complaining. Stop disputing. If God can take on the form of a man and be crucified, he expects us not to raise hell every time we've been offended every time we've been asked to do something that we don't agree with every time we've been told to do something that we don't understand do all the things that god has called us to do and is leading us to do without complaining and without disputing stop raising hell because you think you deserve better stop raising hell because you think you've gone beyond that Stop raising hell because you think that your efforts and your labors deserve better treatment. If anybody's does, his does. And we all fall victim to this. And Paul says, listen, you are a community. Stop acting like that. It's rough. It's a command to the church, though. So what he's saying is if you've been regenerated, recreated, renewed, new mind, this should be possible for you. If you're in the world, it's not possible. If you're in the church and you're living like you're in the world, it ain't possible either. We got one choice. Be born again. Be renewed in the body and in the mind. Don't be conformed to the world. Be conformed into the image of the Son. And then these things become possible. Do everything without disputing. I'm thinking about uh, uh, a couple of pictures. They're like cartoon pictures that you've seen posted. There's one where this little boy is... is uh, is standing. I think the mom told him to, to sit down, and he's, he's like this sitting down, and the caption says, I'm standing on the inside. Right? There's another one where this old man is sitting on a bench with his wife, and he's got the umbrella over her, right? and she's, you know, he's protecting her, but he's so mad on his face. right? He knows he's doing the right thing, but he just can't stand her. I think the reason why I thought about that right now is like, I think that sometimes this is how we are as Christians. We know what the right thing to do is. We're, we'll sit where we've been told to sit, but we're standing on the inside. We'll, we'll live and act the way that we're supposed to by putting the umbrella where God has told us to put it, but you can tell in our face that there's no heart in this. And God is saying that that's not enough. You've got to actually have the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ and be renewed and be restored. And then Paul says, you can do all things without disputing and complaining. God, he sets the bar so high. He says, but if you're able to do this, you can become blameless and harmless, be children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you will shine as lights in the world. You will glorify Jesus and the world will be transformed if you can do this, if you're willing to do this, if you're willing to let this happen to yourself. And then he says, how are you going to do it? Hold fast to the word of life. He says, you got to remember what I taught you. you got to remember what I wrote to you. And you have to actually understand it. Or there's no hope for all this other stuff I want to see happen. This word of life has to fuel and empower us to live this way. If we lose that, we become something other than sinners saved by grace. We become people who work for everything that we think we deserve from God. Because we don't understand. Galatians chapter 1 verse 6 says, Paul says, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. It's not another, but there are some who trouble you and they want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. 
If somebody comes and says, he doesn't have to be incarnate. He doesn't have to be God and man. You don't have to be regenerated and born again and start all over and get a new heart and a new mind. You don't have to have the spirit come live inside of you and empower you to live a Christian life. If somebody comes, let them be cursed. I don't care if it's me 50 years from now and I've changed my mind. I'm wrong. God was right. You have to hold on to the word of life, church. What are you holding on to in your life? Tell me one thing in your life that you were holding on to that has not failed you that you thought was true and it didn't turn out to be a lie, that you thought was perfect and it didn't turn out to be blemished, that you thought was strong and it didn't turn out to be weak. In my life, there's only been one thing, the eternal word of God. Paul says, how can we turn so quickly? And when I say the word, some people say, we, uh, we love the Bible more than we love God. So I don't want you to be confused. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The Word, the eternal Word, Jesus Himself is the only thing that never fails. The only one who never fails. The only one strong enough, the only one willing enough, the only one willing to go so far as to come and recreate what he initially created. And then Paul closes with this. I want to rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Paul says, I didn't come to you and I didn't preach to you and I didn't love you and you didn't love me and I didn't write these letters and I didn't stay committed when I was in prison just to turn around and find out that you've gone away from Jesus. I don't want to run in vain. I don't want to waste my life. Community, remember? He's like, your part is uh, do everything without complaining and disputing, right? but I'm part of the same community. I'm running for you guys. I'm laboring for you. I love you. Let's rejoice together. I don't want to run in vain, he says. He says, my life is being poured out as a drink offering. This is good for those of you that want to understand the relationship of a leader, of a pastor, of Paul with the church in Philippi. He doesn't even try to take credit for all the good things that have happened in their life. He planted the church. He told them about who Jesus was. He's giving them the word of God. But you know what he says? He says, my life is being poured out on top of your life, your sacrifice and your faithfulness. My life is just being poured out as a drink offering. What he's saying is, your whole faith is yours. You had to work out your own salvation with Jesus. You're the one laying on the altar saying, here I am, Lord, and all I'm doing is coming in and making a sweet smell to it by pouring my life out on it. Why? Because we're a community. We're connected. What I can do for you matters. What you can do for me matters, Paul says. And he says, let's rejoice in that. Reasonable service and gratitude to Jesus. Why don't we stand? It's a lot, but it matters. <laughs> Oh, it's a lot, but it matters. <clears throat> so, as we're looking at all these things, every word of God matters. It says that everything's going to pass away, but the word will not pass away. Not one jot, not one tittle will pass away until all things are fulfilled. And even then, it'll just be further revealed and understood when we get to heaven. But still, when we go through a scripture, when we go through a service, when we go through, as we are this time, uh, a book and a few verses within a chapter, we have to ask ourselves, like, what was the main thing? What was it that God was trying to say that we cannot walk out of here without understanding? He gave us some, some reasons why he was saying these things and why they matter to us. But the main thing that I believe the Lord was saying today is be saved. You can have a new mind. God has gone through incredible measures to provide it for us. He came out of heaven and into a man, became a man so that he could save you. He would hate for any of us to live a terrible life and not get saved. And he would also hate for some of us to live a great and amazing life 
and not get saved. It's what matters most. Not our behavior, not the stats, not the, not the scale that's going to measure how much good or bad we did. Did we understand that all that mattered is God came out of heaven into a man, died on a cross sinlessly so that he could impart life into us, that he could forgive us for our sins. That the price that has to be paid for sin would be paid and that we could receive the free gift of forgiveness, the free gift of salvation. He's saying, it's all my work and all you have to do is accept it and receive it. So let's bow our heads, let's close our eyes. Some of you may be already saved here in this place this morning, but maybe as we looked at the incarnation and the things that God has done to save you, maybe you might say in your heart this morning, Lord, I just wanna rededicate my life to you. Right now in my silence, in this place, right where I stand, I wanna tell you that I understand a little bit more of what you've had to do to save me and I wanna say thank you. I wanna say I love you. I wanna rededicate my life to you, Lord. I want to encourage you to do that if that's you. But for others, maybe you're in this place and you don't have the confidence to know that you're saved. You couldn't say that you feel 100% sure that you've been forgiven for your sins, for your actions, for your whole past, your whole future, and Jesus stands holding your hand before the Father saying, this is my beloved my son, my daughter, my brother, my sister. Father, look, righteous, whole, gonna spend eternity with us. If you're not 100% sure about that this morning, God wants you to be. He's brought us to a point where you have to make a decision though, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Either you're gonna make a decision to say, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner and I want to be forgiven. Or you're going to make a decision this morning and say, nope, I think I've got it under control. If you choose Jesus, if you choose salvation, he says you don't have to take anyone's word for it. We are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We will send our spirit to live inside of you and make you 100% sure that you are saved, that I am alive, that I'm going to come back for you, and that you are going to spend eternity in heaven with me but you still got to make the decision first. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. We're all praying. If that's you, you're in this place. You're not saved, but you want to be. You've got to make a decision this morning. If you want to choose Jesus, step out in faith. Say, I believe it's possible. God, would you show me? If that's you, would you raise your hand? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I just want to see you. I see you, sis. Anybody else want to join our sister this morning? Just raise your hand so I can see it. Anybody else this morning want to join our sister? I want to be saved. Hallelujah, Lord. I want to know for sure. I got a lot of issues, but I don't want this to be a problem. I want to be sure about this. Anybody else before we move on? Not saved, but want to be. Join our sister this morning. Hallelujah, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you're still saving. You're still calling that your word is still powerful and alive and moving our hearts, Lord Jesus. We're gonna worship, we're gonna open the altars and these are the prayers I'm gonna mention by name. Anything else, just come if God's talking to you, speaking to you. But the two things are for the mind of Christ and for unity and community. I wanna pray for those that would say, you spent maybe too much time trying to fix your old mind, <laughs> trying to fix it up, wipe it clean, Make it better than it used to be. And maybe this morning you would say, no, I want a new mind. I want a regenerated one. God, you've come down not to fix my old one, but to recreate a new one in me. Only you could do that. And you've told us that that's exactly what you've done. I want to just embrace that. I want to be a part of that. I want to open myself up to that being my reality. Just that mind of Christ. If that's you, you don't want to work on the old anymore. You want God to give you a brand new one. Would you come to the altars? And for unity and community, if we find ourselves disputing, if we find ourselves complaining, 
I just want to pray that God would help us just to surrender, to have the humility that he had, to consider others before ourselves, to love one another, to know that we are of immense importance and value, but it's okay if we're not always treated that way. I want to pray for unity and community. I want to pray for the mind of Christ. And then whatever else you need, the altars are open. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for a chance to worship. We thank you, Lord, that you're still working on us to understand that we would hold fast the word of truth, the word of life. We thank you that you never fail us. Have your way, Lord. We thank you that the word that was, was given to the church in Philippi still works for the church in Brea. We thank you for being so different than who we were and everything we've ever known. We love you this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. The altars are open, church. You're free. You're released.